trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a program for people who are humble in spirit, honest in heart, and who put a greater value on the truth than they do on being told comfortable lies that make them feel good or warm or fuzzy. So if that describes you, pull up a chair. We are about to revel in wrong think and hopefully get a little bit better handle on everything that's going on around us. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors who make this show possible every uh, Monday through Friday. They include the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, HSLAmmo.com, SewingandQuiltingCenter.com, MonticelloCollege.org, and LifesavingFood.com. And I include links to each one of these sponsors in my daily show notes, which you can access at the BrianHydeShow.com. So to start out today, I just I need to acknowledge something here because I know right now there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty and and I'm getting this from a lot of different people. I get this from members of my family, I get this from friends. And one of the big questions that I keep getting asked, and I don't know why they're asking me because it's not like I have all the answers, but uh friends and family ask, are we just being played? You know, is is this is all the information that's coming at us from the official sources and even some non-official sources, is it something that we can trust? And I guess the fact that you even have to ask that question is, well, it's kind of part of the answer right there. Well, why wouldn't we trust? <laughs> I mean, come on. Why, why wouldn't we, uh, you know, think of things in a certain way? Uh, or why wouldn't we think that we could trust what they're telling us? In fact, I want to share something with you. This is from Tom Woods who is one of the most remarkable thinkers in the world today. And this pertains specifically to, uh, you know, the ramping down of all the COVID mania, the dropping of mandates and so forth. But he has eight things the age of Fauci teaches us. And this is a really good summary of just a few of the things that, that we've seen come down the, the pike that uh, that we should probably acknowledge as reality if we're if we're going to, uh, you know, maintain our uh, ability to operate in the real world as opposed to just kind of running around with our head in the clouds and believing whatever it is that that we're told to believe. Tom Wood says even when uh, when even New York City abandons its vaccine passport system as of March seventh, it's gone. He says it's over at least in the non-California United States. Apparently, California's hanging on. But he says there's still plenty to talk about on the COVID front, of course, and we have to make sure not only that existing restrictions are lifted, but also that they can never return again. And it, but he says at the same time, it's growing clearer that it's time to return to a more diverse array of topics along the lines of what uh, he used to cover uh, prior to March 2020. So Tom Woods says, look, I have a very diverse subscriber base. Some people agree with everything I say, but some are here just for COVID information only. Some came for COVID, but then stayed for the whole libertarian package. So he says, regardless of whether any of those describe you, I think we can all say we learned or had reinforced certain things from all this. 
And these are some of the conclusions he came to. So I'm going to throw these at you. You don't have to believe them. But tell me whether these make sense or not. Eight things the age of Fauci teaches us. Number one, there is something seriously wrong with the American establishment. Number two, the American establishment does not have your best interest at heart. Number three, there is something seriously wrong with the American medical establishment. Number four, a large percentage of the general public is prepared to go along with whatever the establishment demands of them without the slightest hint of curiosity about whether it makes sense or not. Number five, dissident voices may not always be right, but they're right a lot, and they're demonized by fashionable opinion. Number six, central direction by an elite of alleged experts who cannot be questioned is a bad way to organize society. Number seven, we must never believe these people again, if we ever did. Everything they say must be scrutinized, but he says they do not deserve the benefit of the doubt. And finally, number eight, we may disagree amongst ourselves, but he says, I respect every single one of you who's stuck with me along this journey, and regardless of what differences we may have had or we may have from here on out, I will listen to you with respect because you were right on the issue of our age, indeed of many ages. So, I thought that was a pretty nice takeaway, considering all the stuff that we've seen happen over the last couple of years. Those are definitely some of the high points in terms of things that we should have learned if we were paying attention. Now, what to do about them? That's uh, This is where you and I get to exercise our own ability to, to solve problems or to, to see how do we fit into this bigger picture. And because there's so much uncertainty, and in fact, there's there's a lot of fear and a lot of tension going on right now, one of the things I want to touch on for, for just a moment is, first of all, to acknowledge, yes, it's scary. This is, this is one of the most tumultuous times that I can remember in, in my life. And I don't just mean like, uh, personally, you know, my life is in shambles. I, I mean, the world, I don't think I've ever seen it more volatile than, than it is right now. And this, uh, you know, it weighs on me. Sometimes it's overwhelming. I have found myself having to disconnect from the media, disconnect from the matrix, from social media and so forth, and just go outside and enjoy, you know, some some peace of mind and some sunshine and allow myself to, to recalibrate until things start to look normal again. In other words, I think it's very possible to overdose or marinate in the bad news to the point where it uh, it just becomes a part of everything that you see. <clears throat> and I understand the need to want to know what's going on and to be aware, right? We need the situational awareness. But we also need to be very keenly aware of when we're hitting unhealthy levels of awareness. Does that make sense? It's possible to be too deeply wrapped up in this. And probably the, the surest sign that, uh, that you're getting a little too deep into this um, is if you, if you can notice, you know, how shrill do I sound? How, how strident is my tone? And I, I have to catch myself on this. I have to watch this and police myself and make sure, okay, am I informing people? Am I, am I giving people encouragement or giving them something on which they can, can base, you know, their, their understanding of the world? Or am I just shoveling fear? 
in their direction. And as hard as I try to avoid doing that, I still end up doing it sometimes. So please accept my apology in advance. If if what I'm saying upsets you or otherwise drives you to a place where you're just like, oh man, I just can't deal with it. But this is why this is why I'm asking you to please consider. There are times where you're going to need to step back and just uh, reassess what's going on. And and I guess the, the counsel that I'm going to offer here, at least this is what I try to practice myself, and I offer this because it appears to work, is when it starts to get to be a bit much, when you start to feel anxious, when you start to feel fearful, more importantly, if you start to feel angry from what you're hearing. Take a step back, unplug from the Matrix. You, it, it'll still be here when you get back. Trust me, the Matrix likes it when you're plugged in. But step back and really focus on the things that actually matter to you. And I'm going to suggest start by looking at the people in your life, the ones closest to you. Look around your household. Look around your family. Look around you and see the relationships that make life worthwhile. Because all the other stuff, all the other trappings of, you know, our success, you know, our houses, our possessions, our money, this is all stuff that could be taken away in, in an instant. Sorry, that sounds fatalistic, but it's, we, we get so hyper-focused on, you know, well, I got to preserve my, uh, my sense of material security. I got to uh, preserve my sense of well-being. When it's all said and done, these things are going to matter very little compared to what, what have I done to build these relationships? What have I done to, to be close to the people and to be there for those who are struggling in my own sphere of influence? Trust me, the opportunities are there. We just sometimes choose to put our attention um, on less productive things. And I am the most guilty of this of anybody. So this isn't to make you feel bad. I'm not sitting here wagging my finger at you and telling you this is what you're doing. I catch myself doing it. So if you find yourself similarly feeling like, man, I'm, I'm really getting tense. I, I, don't, I don't like what I see going on around me. It's, it's true. This is a time where there's some, some very serious upheaval taking place. And some of it has been foreseen. Some of it we've tried to, to warn and tell people, look, you know, be aware this is what's coming down the pike. We try to prepare as best we can. But I guess my, my main plea here is, as you're trying to maintain that awareness, do not lose sight of those things that are most precious. And it's almost always going to look like the people in your life as opposed to the things in your life. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, I got some good news for you on behalf of one of my sponsors, lifesavingfood.com where right now you can save 45% on ReadyWise food storage products. And there's, there's one in particular here I want to, to highlight for you. This is a, uh, a two-bucket package, 240-serving entree and breakfast package. Now, this is a 30-day food supply for one person. And you get an entree bucket with 120 servings, a breakfast bucket with 120 servings. Normal price on this would be $578.99. That's, I mean, that's a chunk of change right there. Now, keep in mind, we're talking, you know, a 25-year shelf life for this. So, you know, take it easy. 
but also realize right now, lifesavingfood.com is slashing the price to $319.99. So $320, that's a 45% savings on this ReadyWise 240 serving entree and breakfast package. Please click the link I provide in my show notes. Check it out for yourself. That's uh, if, if you're just trying to get started on a good food storage program, that may be a good way to go. I'm looking at it right now and thinking, hmm, my food storage seems pretty caught up, but uh, I look at the different uh, kinds of food offered here, and I'm thinking this might be something I'm going to add to my own as well. I sure appreciate him being a sponsor. Well, let's dive in here. Here's a question nobody seems to be interested in asking, but it's a question that has very real bearing on the situation that's playing out right now in Ukraine. You ready for this? Here's the question. What exactly is the role of NATO? Oh, I know. This is, how dare you question NATO, Brian? But I, I actually have a commentary here from Ron Paul. This is his weekly column. It all comes back to NATO. And I want you to consider what he's saying here. He says, when the Bush administration announced in 2008 that Ukraine and Georgia would be eligible for NATO membership, Ron Paul says, I knew it was a terrible idea. Nearly two decades after the end of both the Warsaw Pact and the Cold War, expanding NATO made no sense. In fact, he says, NATO itself made no sense. Explaining my no vote, no vote rather on a bill to endorse the expansion, Ron Paul says, I said at the time, quote, NATO is an organization whose purpose ended with the end of its Warsaw Pact adversary. This current round of NATO expansion is a political reward to governments in Georgia and Ukraine that came to power as a result of U.S.-supported revolutions, the so-called Orange Revolution and Rose Revolution. Providing U.S. military guarantees to Ukraine and Georgia can only further strain our military. This NATO expansion may well involve the U.S. military in conflicts unrelated to our national interest, end quote. Now, he says, unfortunately, as we've seen this past week, my fears have come true. One does not need to approve of Russia's military actions to analyze its stated motivations. NATO membership for Ukraine was a red line it was not willing to see crossed. And as we find ourselves at risk of a terrible escalation, we should remind ourselves that it didn't have to happen this way. There was no advantage to the United States to expand and threaten to expand NATO to Russia's doorstep. And there's no way to argue that we are any safer for it. In fact, he says NATO itself was a huge mistake. Ron Paul writes, when in 1949 the, Senate, the U.S. Senate initially voted on the NATO treaty, Senator Roberg Taft, known as Mr. Republican, gave an excellent speech on why he voted against creating NATO. Explaining his no vote, Taft said, quote, The treaty is part of a much larger program by which we arm all these nations against Russia. A joint military program has already been made. It thus becomes an offensive and defensive military alliance against Russia. I believe our foreign policy should be aimed primarily at security and peace. And I believe such an alliance is likely to produce is more likely to produce war than peace. Now, Taft continued, if we undertake to arm all the nations around Russia and Russia sees itself ringed about gradually by so-called defensive arms from Norway and Denmark to Turkey and Greece, it may form a different opinion. It may decide that the arming of Western Europe, regardless of its present purpose, looks to an attack upon Russia. Its view may be unreasonable, and I think it is, but from the Russian standpoint, it may not seem unreasonable. 
They may well decide that if war is the certain result, that war might uh, better co- occur now than after the arming of Europe is completed. End quote. Now, Ron Paul says how right he was. <clears throat> NATO went off the rails long before 2008, however. The North Atlantic Treaty was signed on April 4th, 1949. By the start of the Korean War, just over a year later, NATO was very much involved in the military operation of the war in Asia, not Europe. Now, NATO's purpose was stated to guarantee the safety and freedom of its members by political and military means. And he says it's not a job well done. Ron Paul finishes by saying, I believe as strongly today as I did back in my 2008 House floor speech, NATO should be disbanded, not expanded. In the meantime, expansion should be off the table. The risks do not outweigh the benefits. I get you. That that is going to rub some people the wrong way. But I still think that's a very valid question. Why exactly does NATO exist? Well, it's to contain the Warsaw Pact. Okay, but the Warsaw Pact is gone. Uh, it's to contain Russia. <laughs> I mean, if, if someone were to build a military alliance that put bases right on our borders, would we not likewise have, you know, some heartburn over this? Let me drive this home just a little bit further. Because uh, U.S. foreign policy is always a tricky subject, since a lot of people equate patriotism with supporting whatever our government is doing abroad. Got an article here by Philip Giraldi explaining how we are creating new enemies. And he says it should come as no surprise that many observers from various political perspectives are beginning to note that there's something seriously disconnected in the fumbling foreign policy of the United States. For instance, the evacuation failure in Afghanistan shattered the already waning self-confidence of the American political elite and the continuing on-again, off-again negotiations that were by design intended to go nowhere with Iran and Russia, provide no evidence that anyone in the White House is really focused on protecting American interests. Now we have a shooting, an actual shooting war in Ukraine as a result. A conflict that might easily escalate if Washington continues to send the wrong signals to Moscow. Now to cite only one example of how outside influences distort policy. In a phone call on February 9th, Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett advised President Joe Biden not to enter into any non-proliferation agreement with Iran. Biden was non-committal, even though it is an actual American interest to come to an agreement, but instead he indicated that as far as the U.S. is concerned, Israel could exercise freedom of action when dealing with the Iranians. With that concession has ended, in all probability, the only possible diplomatic success that the administration might have been able to point to. He says the Biden administration's by default global security policy is currently reduced to what some critics have described as encirclement and containment. That is why an overstretched U.S. military is being tasked with creating ever more bases worldwide in an effort to counter perceived enemies who often are only exercising their own national sovereignty and right to security within their own zones of influence. Now, ironically, when nations balk at submitting to Washington's control, They're frequently described as aggressors and anti-democratic, the language that has most particularly been used relating to Russia. He says the Biden policy, such as it actually exists, appears to be a throwback to the playing field in 1991-92 when the Soviet empire collapsed. 
It is all about maintaining the old American dream of complete global dominance coupled with liberal interventionism. But this time around, the U.S. lacks both the resources and the national will to continue with the effort. And Philip Giraldi says hopefully the White House will understand that to do nothing is better than to make empty threats. I'm sorry if you're hearing your pulse thundering in your ears right now because this is, you know, kicking your blood pressure up a notch. We're going to come back to Philip Giraldi's article here in the next segment. And again, it's I'm, I'm not telling you, you have to believe this, but I am going to ask you to just consider the possibility. Is U.S. foreign policy doing a better job of creating new enemies or creating peace and security? I know how I would answer that question at this point. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. By the way, if you haven't subscribed to my show notes, I'm not saying that they're going to answer all of your questions about life and, you know, the origins of the universe and that kind of thing, but... I can promise you this, if you take the time to read the various articles and commentators that I link to in those show notes, you will definitely have a little bit better understanding. And I I handpick these sources based on uh, whether or not they are agendized, you know, or who are they carrying water for? I try to find the most nonpartisan, credible, and timely information that I can. And I think for the most part, I actually succeed pretty well on this. But you can you can decide for yourself if it uh, if it strikes you as, hey, this really is informative or this is helpful or this provides a point of view that I'm not getting through some of the more controlled media outlets. You know, then consider subscribing. All it'll cost you is your email address, which I will not share with anyone or sell to anyone. But I'll drop it in your inbox each morning as I uh, publish my show notes. So back to this article by Philip Giraldi. Creating new enemies. This describes what U.S. foreign policy has been doing for quite some time. And he says, as the situation continues to erode, speaking of, you know, Ukraine and Russia, it's becoming more and more obvious that the twin crises that have been developing over Ukraine and Taiwan are made in Washington and are somewhat inexplicable as the U.S. does not have a compelling national interest that would justify threats to leave on the table military options as a possible response. The administration has yet again responded to Russian moves by initiating devastating sanctions. But Russia also has unconventional weapons in its arsenal. It can, for starters, uh, shift focus away from Ukraine by intervening much more actively in support of Syria and Iran in the Middle East disrupting feeble American attempts to manage that region to benefit Israel. According to economists, Russia has also been effectively sanction-proofing its economy and is capable of selective reverse sanctioning of countries that support an American initiative with any enthusiasm. Now, such a response would likely hurt the Europeans much more than it would damage the leadership in the Kremlin. Barring Russian gas from Europe by shutting down Nord Stream 2 would, for example, permit increased sales to China and elsewhere in Asia, and it would inflict more pain on the Europeans than on Moscow. Shipping U.S.-supplied liquid gas to Europe would, for example, cost more than twice the going rate being offered by the Kremlin, and would also be less reliable. 
that European NATO members are clearly nervous and not fully behind the U.S. agenda on Ukraine, largely because there is a legitimate concern that any and possibly all options being considered by Washington could easily produce missteps, missteps rather, that could escalate into a nuclear exchange, which would be catastrophic for all parties involved. Now, Philip Giraldi says, apart from the real immediate danger to be derived from the fighting currently taking place in Ukraine, the real long-term damage is strategic. The Joe Biden administration has adroitly maneuvered itself into a corner, while America's two principal adversaries, Russia and China, have drawn closer together to form something like a defensive as well as an economic relationship that will be dedicated to reducing and eventually eliminating Washington's assumed role as the global hegemon and rules enforcer. In a recent article in the New Yorker, foreign affairs commentator Robin Wright, who might reasonably be described as a hawk, declares the new development to be Russia and China unveiling a pact against America and the West. And she's not alone in ringing the alarm bell with former Donald Trump National Security Council, NSC Russia watcher Anita Hill, warning that the Kremlin's intention is to force the United States out of Europe while former NSC Ukrainian expert Alexander Vindman is advising that military force be used to deter Russia now before it's too late. Now, Wright provides the most serious analysis of the two developments. She argues that Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping, the two most powerful autocrats, <clears throat> challenge the current political and military order. And she describes how, in a meeting between the two leaders before the Beijing Olympics... They cited an agreement that also challenges the United States as a global power. NATO as a cornerstone of international security and liberal democracy as a model for the world. They pledged that there would be no forbidden areas of cooperation and a written statement that was subsequently produced declared that Russia and China stand against attempts by external forces to undermine security and stability in their common adjacent re regions intend to counter interference by outside forces in the internal affairs of sovereign countries under any pretext, oppose color revolutions, and will increase cooperation. Now Wright notes that there is considerable strength behind the agreement, as two nuclear-armed countries that span Europe and Asia, the more muscular alignment between Russia and China could be a game-changer militarily and diplomatically. One might add that China now has the world's largest economy, and Russia has a highly developed military deploying new hypersonic missiles that would give it the advantage in any conflict with NATO and the U.S. Both Russia and China, if attacked, would also benefit because they would be fighting close to their bases on interior lines. Philip Giraldi says, and of course, not everyone agrees that nudging the United States out of its self-proclaimed hegemonic role would be a bad thing. Former British diplomat Alistair Crook argues that there will be a perpetual state of crisis in the international order until a new system emerges from the status quo that ended the Cold War. And it would be minus the United States as the semi-official transnational rulemaker and arbiter. He observes that the crux of Russia's complaints about its eroding security have little to do with Ukraine per se, but are rooted in the Washington hawks' obsession with Russia and their desire to cut Putin and Russia down to size, an aim which has been the hallmark of U.S. policy since the Yeltsin, Yeltsin years. The Victoria Newland clique could never accept Russia rising to become a significant power in Europe, possibly eclipsing U.S. control over Europe. 
So he summarizes what's happening in Europe and Asia should all come down to a very simple realization about the limits of power. America has no business risking a nuclear war with Russia over Ukraine or with China over Taiwan. The United States has been fighting much of the world for over two decades, impoverishing itself and killing millions in avoidable wars, starting with Iraq and Afghanistan. The U.S. government is cynically exploiting memories of old Cold War enemy Russia to create a false narrative that goes something like this. Well, if we don't stop them over there, they'll be in New Jersey next week. And Philip Giraldi says, it's all nonsense. And besides, who made the U.S. the sole arbiter of international relations? It's past time Americans started asking what kind of international order it is that lets the United States determine what other nations can and cannot do. This reminds me of a conversation I had with the Congressman Chris Stewart a few years back. It did not go well. <laughs> Worst of all, Philip Giraldi says, all the bloodshed in Ukraine has been unnecessary. A little real diplomacy with honest negotiators weighing up real interests could easily have come to an acceptable solution for all parties involved. And it's indeed ironic that the burning desire to go to war with Russia, demonstrated in the New York Times and Washington Post, as well as on Capitol Hill, has in fact created a real formidable enemy. Tying Russia and China together in an alliance due to their frustration at dealing with a Biden administration that never seems to know what it's doing or where it wants to go. Now, again, there's, there is absolutely no requirement that you either agree with or much less believe what uh, Philip Giraldi is saying here. I merely offer this as a counterbalance to the prevailing narrative, which is essentially, look, everything the U.S. does is good and noble and righteous. And I know that there are people who want to believe it. I want to believe it, too. But unfortunately, I've been paying attention, and, and I've seen too many examples where we turn a blind eye to, to things that, uh, that our government has done that is just as destructive and heinous and, and, and unjustified. Oh, sure, I mean, we're, we're a little bit, uh, you know, we're not as heavy-handed or clumsy as, as Russia is. Those drone strikes, you know, that are killing innocent people all around the world for the last how many years— well, you know, that's just, you know, you gotta going to make an omelet. You're going to have to break a few eggs. It's easy to explain it away when it's happening to someone far off in some other country. And this is, this is the curse of nationalism. This is one of the reasons why, at least as an individual, I reject nationalism. Because it seems to be able to justify any atrocity as long as it's being done to them and not being done to us. But it's still wrong. And the suffering that has been caused by interventionism in, in various conflicts, large and small, Iraq, Afghanistan, Yemen, uh, Syria, Libya. And there are other conflicts going on. I, I, don't, even, I don't even know where, where all, you know, we're launching drone strikes and, and otherwise have, have troops and bases, you know, on other people's soil. I just know it's a lot of places. And, and the more troops and the more fighting that our military does abroad, how is it that we are less free here at home? Sorry, I'm making you uncomfortable. But I think these are the kind of questions that, uh, that we've got to be asking. And it's not uh, disloyalty, it's not treasonous or seditious to point out 
that what we are being told and what is actually happening are two very different things. We should be calling these things into question. And we should think before giving our allegiance to those things. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I love a good dystopian story, whether it's a movie, whether it's a, a book. Yep. It's a, it's a, it's a fun thing to, to read about. And things have been looking pretty dystopian lately. Have you noticed that? Okay, just checking. <laughs> I think for the last couple of years we've all been like, how could this get any crazier? And then it does. And even more things seem to be popping off, uh, you know, as, as we speak. But I saw a great article from the Foundation for Economic Education. This is from Matt Hampton. And it wonders, which dystopian story does 2022 resemble the most? Between cancel culture, government censorship, economic stagnation. Yeah, the news is pretty dystopian, but what work of fiction is most similar to our reality? So the article says, imagine waking up one day unable to access your bank account because of your political beliefs. Imagine faking your facial expression whenever people were around to avoid committing face crime. Imagine if the economy ground to a halt like a train that ran out of fuel. Does it sound far off? It may sound like paranoid hyperbole to say that we're living in dystopia, but the, the core of valuable dystopian fiction is exploring what elements of our society have effects that would, if taken to the extreme, destroy our freedom and go against human dignity. So Matt Hampton says, My out-of-frame colleagues have analyzed the meaning and relevance of a variety of dystopian fiction. Things like Demolition Man, The Hunger Games, Arcane, the Matrix, The Handmaid's Tale, Brave New World, V for Vendetta. But what dystopia is most relevant right now? And here are three contenders, including examples that bear similarity purely due to the presence of a pandemic. So, first one is Black Mirror. The sci-fi anthology series is packed with ideas that are as intriguing as they are nightmarish. But the episode Nosedive from 2016 stands out as relevant to our current world. Darkly comedic rather than terrifying, as most Black Mirror episodes are, Nosedive follows Lacey, played by Bryce Dallas Howard, who lives in a society where everyone rates each other using an app after every interaction. Characters can see each other's aggregate rating on a scale from one to five stars through augmented reality eye implants. Now, if your score drops too low, your access to housing, transportation, health care, and work is restricted. Naturally, authentic human interaction has been blotted out in favor of cloying for social status. In the episode's opening shot, Lacey is literally practicing her fake smile and laugh in front of her bathroom mirror. Now, nosedive is a pretty obvious metaphor for how humans vie for reputation and how social media has made that even more competitive. You can draw parallels that range from Uber ratings to the People Re People's Republic of China's social credit system. And although the episode doesn't explore how a culture of conformity relates to political expression, it rings true regarding cancel culture and how people self-censor their opinions to avoid social backlash. 62% of Americans have opinions they're not willing to share. 77%, by the way, among conservatives. Now, this trend was evident when Nosedive was produced, but it's only gotten worse since then. 
The episode's vision that people would be denied access to services based on socially disapproved actions also feels eerily prescient. Recently, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau froze the bank accounts of people involved in the Canadian trucker protest and cracked down on donations to the demonstrators. So it's not hard to see how, as technology comes to integrate more aspects of our lives, the opportunity will arise for state and corporate authorities to monitor our actions and try to mold them. By the way, if you haven't seen that episode, it is really worth your time. And to me, one of the great moments was uh, a truck driver, of all people, in that episode, who just said, you know what? Screw this social rating. Screw, you know, trying to get everybody else's approval. I'm going to say what I feel. She talks about how her socials credit score dropped, you know, faster than you could have imagined. But she said it felt so good. It was like taking off tight shoes to be able to speak her mind and not have to conform to society's expectations to keep that uh, social rating high. Very, very worthwhile. All right, this brings us to 1984. Matt Hampton says, yes, I know as well as anyone that George Orwell's most famous work is the most over-referenced novel when it comes to authoritarianism. But the fact that some people beat a dead horse should not preclude me from drawing legitimate comparisons to the book, especially when going beyond its most commonly cited themes like censorship, propaganda, surveillance, and torture. What makes 1984 great is how concretely it describes the psychological effects of living in an authoritarian society. Like in Nosedive, this involves social conformity, only the consequences are much more severe. Citizens of the authoritarian nation of Oceania report their friends and neighbors, even their family, to the police for the smallest infractions. Characters keep their facial expressions under control at all times for fear of committing face crime by revealing discontentment with the system, whether to the comrades or the omnipresent telescreens. Politics dominates life in 1984. From daily two minutes hate rallies to Big Brother posters on every corner. Here's a quote from the book. In principle, a party member had no spare time and was never alone except in bed. It was assumed that when he was not working, eating, or sleeping, he would be taking part in some kind of communal recreation to do anything that suggested a taste for solitude, even to go for a walk by yourself, was always slightly dangerous. There was a word for it in Newspeak. Own life, it was called meaning individualism and eccentricity, end quote. Now, the paranoia of this reality fills both the protagonist with hate and makes him yearn, makes him yearn for own life for an escape from the all-consuming political dogma. Though America of 2022 bears little resemblance to Oceania of 1984, this desire is relatable. With political messages filling entertainment, sports, advertising, and the workplace, more aspects of life are becoming culture war battlefields. And along with the animosity engendered by rising polarization, about two-thirds of Americans feel worn out by the degree to which they are required to pay attention to political and social issues. Finally, Atlas Shrugged. Now, whether or not you're a fan of Ayn Rand's influential novel or her philosophy as a whole, Atlas Shrugged offers a lot to think about, particularly regarding America's struggling economy. Over the course of the book, the government issues regulations to solve economic problems and to satisfy special interests. But these actions only worsen the situation by discouraging competition and productivity. The government takes more and more authoritarian measures, including freezing wages and banning people from leaving their jobs. 
but it only digs the nation deeper into the recession as it ignores the incentives that keep the economy running and causes entrepreneurs to get fed up. Now, Ayn Rand grew up in the Soviet Union and lived through the Great Depression in the U.S., and it's clear these experiences influenced Atlas Shrugged. But the plot is also reminiscent of the most recent recession. For example, the current supply chain crisis was in part caused by the labor shortage, which was caused by enhanced unemployment benefits, which were intended to remedy workers laid off when the government ordered businesses to shut down to stop the pandemic. In reaction to the supply chain jam, the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach issued fines to try to force carriers to get their cargo moving. Each action only creates the cause for further actions, and the result is the same as in Atlas Shrugged, fewer goods on shelves, and an overall reduction in quality of life. So, it's easy to succumb to catastrophic thinking when comparing current events to fictional dystopias. But the entire purpose of the genre is to point out how our society is evolving in destructive ways. Quoting Orwell, It has been suggested by some reviewers of 1984 that it is the author's view that this or something like this is what will happen inside the next 40 years in the Western world. That is not correct. Orwell said, I think that allowing for the book being, after all, a parody, something like 1984, could happen. This is the direction in which the world is going at the present time, and the trend lies deep in the political, social, and economic foundations of the contemporary world situation. The moral to be drawn from this dangerous nightmare is a simple one. Don't let it happen. It depends on you. Now, this is Matt Hampton, who is the Digital Marketing Associate for the Foundation for Economic Education. Might be worth revisiting 1984. Might be worth dusting off your copy of uh, Atlas Shrugged. And I certainly would recommend the uh, nosedive episode from Black Mirror. Things may be looking pretty uh, bleak right now. But there's always a lesson to be learned. And there are always things to, to, uh, to pick up on as you're looking at the passing scene. One of the things that I do appreciate about these times, even though they're difficult and even sometimes uh, scary, is it forces us out of the comfort zone and forces us to find ways to innovate to get around some of the restrictions and some of the unnecessary interventions that we see in our lives. For instance, how many people have a sudden interest in crypto based on what they saw happen in Canada just a couple of weeks ago with freezing people's bank accounts and basically making their money off limits? I don't know about you, but I'm looking at my money in a much different light than I was, say, a month ago. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. If you've been looking for a place to revel in wrong think, pull up a chair, my friend. You found it. And if you are a new wrong thinker, well, I'll grant you, it can be a little bit scary getting started. But look around you and you will find that you are in very good company, even if our numbers are few. 
This is a program for people who are determined to think for themselves, to think as clearly and independently as possible, in spite of the blizzard of disinformation and managed narratives that are coming at us 24-7. It does take a little bit of extra effort to be able to own your worldview, but it's absolutely worth it. And to that end, I am here to encourage you and to to hopefully inspire you to, to pay the price to know what you know. Our program is brought to you by the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, HSLAmmo.com, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, MonticelloCollege.org, and LifesavingFood.com. Because there is so much back and forth, and I mean in social media as well as mainstream media right now, uh, regarding uh, information, I just I want to throw a quick recommendation your way. If you haven't subscribed to the Good Citizen Substack, it is an excellent resource for information outside of the Borg's echo chamber, which is probably 90% of the media and social media stuff that's going on out there right now. And I'm sorry, but that includes, uh, that includes you know, Fox News as well as CNN, ABC, and all these other ones. Essentially, the essay that uh, I, I link to in today's show notes is that the propaganda war is not the war. Western media are dominating the propaganda war in Ukraine, as expected, and it's serving as a nice distraction for the Borg. I'm not going to go into great details here, but there are some marvelous examples given in this story. It's, it's well-researched. You can see it with your own eyes. You can hear it with your own ears. But here's, here's, the, here's the bottom line. Good citizens, the, the essay says, when the Western hyenas, meaning the media, refuse the ceasefire that uh, that could be taking place in Ukraine to get more images of dead civilians for their propaganda war. Bert the Turtle has some useful advice for all of us. Don't forget your mask and COVID pass for the bomb shelter if it saves just one life. <laughs> it's actually, it's an old duck and cuffer cartoon from 1951, Bert the Turtle. Two weeks to flatten the curve. How about two nukes to flatten the earth? This is some pretty sharp stuff here, but it's it's very well written, and I think it would be worth your time to, to spend a little bit of time examining what the good citizen has to say. Now, let's uh, talk about the interconnectedness of the financial realm, because this is creating some complications for the people trying to sanction Russia into submission. I've got an essay here from Thomas L. Knapp describing how the West's swift kick is aimed at Russia, but it may up may end up hitting the uh, U.S. dollar as well. Thomas L. Knapp says, as part of the Western response to Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine, several regimes acted on February 26th to exclude certain Russian banks from the Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunications Network. This is the SWIFT acronym. As of March 1st, Reuters reports, SWIFT says it's awaiting a list of the sanctioned banks so that it can cut them off. Now, Thomas L. Knapp says SWIFT is a messaging service that connects banks worldwide. So it's not a bank itself. It's not even, strictly speaking, a payment network. It carries instructions for transfers, but the transfers take place via other networks. It's just one moving part in the world's complex finance and trade system. Now, as with most such measures, giving Russian banks the boot from SWIFT is certain to hurt the sanctioners along with the sanctioned. But he says in this case, the potential victims with the most to lose are the issuers and holders 
of U.S. dollars. Here's why. Dollars aren't the only currency that gets moved using SWIFT. But the dollar is the de facto global reserve currency and thus the most affected by such moves. Nearly everyone accepts the dollar. Nearly everyone wants to have a fat stack of dollars on hand. In particular, global trade in oil has been powered by the petrodollar for nearly 50 years. Now, if you want to buy a barrel of bent crude from most sellers, or Brent crude from most sellers, you need to be able to plunk down, at least as he writes this, 105.46 U.S. dollars, not 395.72 Saudi rials, not uh, 7,983.35 Indian rupees, not 665.78 Chinese yuan. It's 105.46 U.S. dollars or no sale. So what happens when one of the world's largest producers of oil is cut off from SWIFT and doesn't want U.S. dollars as much as it used to because other sanctions make those dollars difficult to spend? Oh, and also has trading partners who are watching these sanctions and fear they could be the next victims. What happens? Well, this. A rupee-ruble trade agreement may get a push now that Russia is out of SWIFT. That's a report from the Times of India. And China will like will presumably likewise increase its yuan-ruble trade with Russia. Now, the Times of India article notes, This isn't a sudden development. India had entered into a rupee-ruble trade agreement with Russia earlier to shield the two nations from unilateral sanctions from the United States. Now, Thomas Knapp asks, what makes the dollar valuable? Well, it's the same thing that makes anything valuable. People wanting it. And between China and Russia, more than a quarter of the world's population are in the process of wanting the dollar less than they used to. And believe it or not, that in turn makes every dollar in your pocket worth less than it once was. So, in the short term, the swift kick and other sanctions may hurt Russia more than they hurt you. But the uncontested reign of the U.S. dollar among global currencies seems to be nearing its end, in part because the U.S. government is driving the world away from it with the constant threat of sanctions. Now, the smart move for Americans? Well, Thomas L. Knapp says hold as few dollars as you can get by on. Trade your dollars for gold, silver, and cryptocurrency while they're still worth something to someone, somewhere. Sorry, I'm just pausing for a moment to let that shiver that went up the spine of each banker kind of pass. What do you mean? (laughs) Trade your dollars for gold, silver, and cryptocurrency. Now, I don't know. Maybe maybe we're hitting the panic button by, by even suggesting such things. But when I think about what we saw happen in terms of the freezing and seizing of bank accounts in Canada for merely even being suspected of supporting the truckers' protest. It's super clear to me that uh, the systems are already in place to take your money from you at, at a moment's notice. I know, you've got local banks and local credit unions and stuff, and they would never do such a thing, and I, I want to believe that's true. But I also would invite you to please think about what we saw happen during... COVID, where so many businesses were like, well, our hands are tied. You know, OSHA says we have to do this, so it's the jab or your job. I don't think there's evil intent on their part, but I think there's definitely leverage being used against them, which in turn is used against us. 
And if they're part of a system that has these measures in place to where they can be locked down or frozen or otherwise accessed, or at least you have uh, your access to your money prevented, maybe it is time to start thinking about uh, what are some of the things I can do to, to maintain the value of the money that I have. You know, confiscation is, is one thing, okay? And, and I'll admit, confiscation is, is a, a pretty scary thought. That more than anything probably is is why I'm I'm very much of of a mind that yeah if you can't get your hands on it it's really not yours if you can't touch it it's not really your money but the thing that we aren't talking enough about and the thing that uh, that is really doing the biggest harm to everybody across the board is inflation and no the simplistic explanations from people like senator elizabeth warren well this is just greedy companies out there trying to raise their prices to gouge people and take advantage of them no it's the loss of purchasing power in every dollar that is in circulation and the sick thing about inflation is whether you are uh, using those dollars or whether they're just sitting somewhere in a bank account or whether they're you know you have dollar bills stuffed in a mattress somewhere you know to keep them safe Each dollar buys less today than it did yesterday because inflation has been steadily moving upward. So that's a consideration you have to take into account as well. You know, I mean, people who are sitting on a nice retirement nest egg, that's, it's wonderful. And, you know, I applaud the discipline that they've shown in putting that money aside for a future use. But what happens when every dollar in their savings purchases less food, less gas, less prescriptions, less, uh, you know, passes to the golf course than it did, you know, a month earlier. Yeah, we got a little bit of a dilemma, and it's time to start thinking outside the box if you want to retain the value of, you know, whatever money you do have. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. You know, it's a pretty hot real estate market right now in many markets throughout the uh, Intermountain West. Utah, yeah, you're, you're right in the midst of it. So if you're one of the thousands of people relocating to Utah from wherever, first of all, it's a good move. You're going to find a lot more freedom here than you probably would have found where you were coming from, but... When you find the home of your dreams, you're also going to find there are a lot of other buyers trying to purchase that home as well. So you've got to have your financing squared away quickly. This is why I want you to reach out to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. They are based in St. George, Utah at 619 South Bluff Street. But they can help you anywhere in the state of Utah, whether you need a VA loan or a traditional loan, even a reverse mortgage. Contact the Heather Turner team and enjoy the stability and cloud to get that loan that you need, but most importantly, to get it without delay. You can call Heather at 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. I wonder how many people are starting to get serious about uh, preparedness right now. I'm thinking about this because uh, right now my my daughter is living in a country in Europe where, uh, believe it or not, food storage is prohibited. You are not allowed, by law, you cannot legally store more than whatever the government considers a reasonable amount of food in your home. I know, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but this, this 
this is the way it is. I don't know if they call it hoarding or whatever, but, you know, the, the idea that you should have food stored, um, this is not allowed. I'd, I'd love to know the thinking behind that. But uh, anyway, being prepared makes sense. And especially as you see uncertainty and as you see rising prices, you know, people want to convert their money into something of value. So, but let's talk preparedness for a moment about uh, particularly if you're going to make self-reliance a priority. Something you may want to keep in mind is that training preparedness is better than simply learning preparedness. Now, this is an article from the organic prepper. Fabian Omar is the author. And Omar says, do you know in which ways and to what extent changes in lifestyle, routine, and consumption habits would affect you both psychologically and physically? Do you know how substituting or being without everyday products, appliances, food, services, and utilities can impact your health, mood, and performance? I think these are really good questions to ask because we've seen how people freak out over toilet paper and everyone knows how things get really crazy when food vanishes. However, this is about everyday stuff we and our family are accustomed to, some or even most of which we don't even think about until it's missing from the shelves or lacking somehow. Now, Omar says, maybe you've been through this or you're already experiencing it now. The water is boiling and things are accelerating, but I'd argue that we're still consuming resources and enjoying the tail end of recent past opulence. In a year or two from now, we might look back and say, wow, those were good times. So a slow-burning crap hitting the fan isn't less deadly, nor does it mean less suffering. It's still hardship, misery, and distress for many, in fact, for most. Natural disasters and wars present big risks and kill people, sure, but so does inflation, unemployment, and oppression. People go broke, get sick, starve and freeze, commit suicide, enter drugs and crime, and so on, in much larger numbers during such periods. I think we saw this uh, borne out through the, the darkest days of the pandemic, right? And Omar says, I'm really not surprised by any of that. I'm not prepared for a meteor hitting the earth nor a nuclear winter, and I didn't see the pandemic coming, but I've been preparing for and warning about third worldization for years. Now I see it materializing everywhere. In fact, a recent article by historian Victor Davis Hansen describes this perfectly. Quote, in modern times, as in ancient Rome, several nations have studied a, suffered rather, a systems collapse. Now, this term describes the sudden inability of once prosperous populations to continue with what had ensured the good life as they knew it, end quote. So Omar says, what exactly is this system collapse Hansen refers to? Well, mind you, it's not the stereotypical crap hitting the fan, but it impacts our everyday life all the same. Abruptly, the population cannot buy or even find once plentiful necessities. They feel their streets are unsafe. Laws go unenforced or enforced inequitably. Every day, things stop working. The government turns from reliable to capricious, if not hostile. Well, it's certainly not sudden, sudden nor abrupt for the ones learning from history and paying attention to post signs and developments. But Hansen got third worldization nailed down much better than I ever could. Now, Omar says, look, you need a realistic perspective. People are not stupid. They see what's happening. They feel it in their daily lives and in others as well, despite all the censoring, disinformation, and gaslighting taking place. 
with everything that's going on, more and more are preparing to take a blow. Yet too many are still hoping for 2019's world to come back. And Omar says, I tend not to underestimate others based on history and what I've seen for myself. As I've said on other occasions, people in general have a high capacity to adapt and survive. But here's the kicker. Few know what lay in store. And thanks to normalcy bias and other cognitive deficiencies and social behaviors, even fewer are actively preparing to live in a more fluid and precarious context to improve their condition and their family's lifestyle. So what's the difference between learning preparedness and training preparedness? Well, however we choose to learn survivalism and prepare, like practical courses, books, or boot camps, it's important to keep practicing and testing. Theory and stuff are all good, but not even half of it. When I got into preparedness and survivalism, at the same time I strove to learn and improve. I also set to develop methods to incorporate constant testing and training into my efforts. I live by the saying, we don't rise to our expectations, but fall to the level of our training. One way I came up to do this was using the urban environment to become more resourceful and aware, more knowledgeable, to test gears and strategies to remain fit and nimble. To complement that, I developed ways to simulate grid-down scenarios at home. Both concepts make the core of my street survival training book, and this article focuses on the latter. So, Omar suggests using mixed strategies for training. I came with that name for lack of a better option, but it's really just a series of exercises that can be done practically for free in our own settings, making use of what's already at hand, plus a few basic items that should be part of any prepper's gear kit anyway. Using our own resources, preps, and surroundings to practice presents some great advantages. It makes it much easier and smoother to integrate training into our routine, and we become more natural and adept to perform in our own element, whether it's a crisis or not. So it's not the wheel reinvented by any means. Just seek comfort and perform daily tasks in increasingly challenging conditions. That's it, in essence. Bushcrafters and outdoor enthusiasts do this by venturing into the wilderness. Anyone can simulate grid-down situations that are common during disasters and crises in the city and at home. So here's a word of caution. The aim is to build resilience, preparedness, toughness, and not to get injured. But by all means, push yourself. Use common sense, and if you're unsure about something, have someone help. Check with your doctor if necessary. Start slow, be deliberate and cautious, especially when dealing with dangerous items and procedures, flammables, pointy and sharp devices, tools, firearms, electricity, etc. Be patient, observant, judicious. At least that's how we should proceed when the crud hits the fan anyway. Now, he provides some very specific ideas to get started. But as always, says adapt as needed, be creative. A lot about comfort and convenience is personal and circumstantial. So be encouraged to come up with your own ideas. And these are just a few of the things that he recommends, like go without taking a shower or take cold showers or test alternative products or equipment with experiment rather with uh, with sleep pattern changes. Walk, jog and exercise in the cold and heat. Skip meals. Do things in the dark for training preparedness. Experiment with forced diet changes. How about this one? Sleep on the floor. Use the stairs as a form of physical training or try going without heat or cooling. There's a whole slew of suggestions in this article. None of them are dangerous or too radical, but they would definitely help you adapt to a situation where these things weren't under your control. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I just want to do a quick follow-up on this article from, uh, this is from The Organic Prepper. Fabian Omar talking about training for preparedness is better than simply learning about preparedness. And he offers some very interesting suggestions here, ways you can train right where you are with the things that you have to get yourself better situated and better mentally prepared for a situation where things are not optimal. And I thought there was there was a couple ones that uh, that were really worth pointing out here. Um, one was to use alternative gear to perform daily activities. So this is what that would look like. He says it's very interesting and highly educational to learn how to carry out, carry on rather, without everyday appliances. So spend a day or two, or maybe more, without consuming stuff from the fridge, not using the microwave oven or oven for cooking, and so on. Instead, use camping equipment at home, water filters, cookware, spirit or propane stoves, flashlights, and tools. Time those tasks to have an idea of real-life performance and track improvement. And then he says, charge your stuff using solar panels or or power banks or other alternatives to see how much you can rely on if the power goes out. In other words, you, you put it to the test. Learn the strengths and weaknesses. I am so grateful, so grateful for my friend Nathan who introduced me to the world of solar cooking. And I've got, I've got a couple of parabolic solar cookers. I've got a sun oven. And I actually have experience in using these things. Now, they're kind of a novelty right now because I can always go in and flip on the oven or flip on the stove and, you know, cook whatever I want. But it's good to know that if I had to, I could prepare a nice meal using my sun oven without too much difficulty. Why? Because it's not just something I have that sits on the shelf or that, I've, that I have never unpacked. It's still the original wrapping. You got to have a few calluses. This was another suggestion I thought was especially beneficial. Training to go without TV. <gasps> Keep the TV off. No Netflix, no cable, no video game, nothing. Instead, read books, do crosswords, puzzles, cook or fix something, write do some work, listen to music, whatever. If you feel uneasy, in fact, try some meditation to calm your mind. And Omar says this does work and you might just enjoy it. If you have company, tell jokes and old stories, play board games, play chess, maybe just even talk to each other. Be observant of how this affects the mood of individuals and the dynamics of your family. You may be surprised, in fact, because it's usually for the better. In fact, this brings us to the point of getting the family involved in training preparedness is really important. He says, this is important for anyone who's living with others. The way I found not to look too much like a crazy prepper or a tinfoil hatter, and at the same time to get others not just involved but actively interested in looking for an award to participating, is to turn it into some sort of a game. Now, adults will understand it's training. But kids will hopefully join in if there's a fun or challenging component. Now, see, the harder part may be trying to keep some kind of OPSEC about it. That is, talking everyone into not going out, uh, posting on social media, and boasting about these exercises. But he says, I don't have all the answers, and every family's different, so you have to figure this out. If you have pets, make sure you include them in that training, too. 
Use it or lose it. Preparations, whether gear, resources, skills, whatever, work much, much better if they get integrated into our life experience. And it doesn't have to be anything too intensive or time-consuming, just ways to add a bit here and there, but in a frequent and consistent way. Whatever system we have in place, whether it's stockpiles or alternative energy-generating arrangements, security, etc., should be constantly used and cycled to keep those resources fresh, updated, adjusted, and regularly upgraded. In fact, he says prepping is no different than most of the other things in life, so don't underestimate the power of compounding. Can I share one quick example of what this might look like? Years ago, some friends uh, got got their hands on a book called uh, Patriots, Surviving the Coming Collapse by John Wesley Rawls. It's an interesting book. And it's more of like a how-to manual than just a novel, but it's a how-to manual masquerading as a novel. And it talks about a huge economic collapse that, uh, that takes not just the U.S., but the whole world into a very difficult survival situation. Multiple cascading failures basically bring the whole system to a halt, and, uh, and you know the, the cities erupt in chaos when people can't get food any longer. Oh, I'm just a ray of sunshine, I know. We decided that we would put together what we called a camping club. Now, to the suspicious among you, wait a minute, what are you talking, some kind of a family militia? No, no, it was was a camping club. But here's the key. We got together with like-minded people. All of us had kids. We had small kids as well as bigger kids. And we decided that uh, we would go out and test our camping gear, test and develop our, our skills and our knowledge of what we could do, regardless of the weather. So this means going out to camping in the summer on the Arizona Strip. Now, you might think, well, that's no big deal. It's so nice and warm there. Yeah. In fact, that was a big deal because we learned very quickly, heat is something that's tough to deal with, keeping everybody properly hydrated. You got to learn to deal with it. Learning how to deal with the little no Oh, my gosh. I don't know what those bugs were, what what kind of uh, little insects were out there. But uh, all of us came home very bug bit and wiser for it. We learned the value of having a good head net, you know, to put on when you've got uh, a bunch of little bugs trying to fly into your ears and up your nose. But the point is we went out there and suffered the bugs and we all learned. We went camping later up uh, Pinto Springs out west of Cedar City in six degree overnight temperatures intense okay we weren't parking our campers out there and just firing up the propane furnace and oh yes this is roughing it no we pitched tents and using our cylinder stoves kept ourselves warm in single digit temperatures and yes the whole family small kids to grown-ups alike gave it a go there were times where it was kind of miserable I'll admit, we all learned about what cold weather gear worked and what didn't. But it was also an extremely great exercise in building confidence in what we had. And I think this is one of the most important aspects of what we did. Every time we would go camping, every time we would would go together as as a club, everybody was assigned to learn a skill and come prepared to teach that skill to others. So one of our members was very active in search and rescue, very experienced in ropes and rappelling. So we learned a lot about how to set up a, a rappelling harness, how to, how to tie proper knots. 
Another was uh, was experienced in map reading and, and map navigation with a compass. So we learned about orienteering. We taught the kids how to make a solar cooker to cook a hot dog out of a shoebox and some tinfoil. Now, I don't know. That strikes you as, well, that seems pretty doomsday-oriented there, Brian. What kind of thing are you trying to teach your kids? The kids never operated from a sense of fear. It was fun. And it was a great opportunity to test the equipment that we had in the real world. We learned very quickly what worked and what didn't. But we also became much more tightly knit as a group. And it's been quite a few years since we did our camping club, and a lot of us have moved in different directions. But I'm not exaggerating when I tell you, these are the kind of people whom I would trust with my life or with the life of a loved one if it came to that. Because I've seen what they can do. I've seen, I've seen how they operate, even under less than ideal conditions. So I'm, I'm offering this to you as uh, just, you know, something that, uh, that you may want to consider. Who do you know around you that might be interested in getting together to, to learn how to apply specific skills? It doesn't have to be an end-of-the-world scenario. It just means you're just preparing for conditions that uh, may be less than optimal. How would you make things work, you know, if there was an extended power outage that lasted more than two or three days? I mean, I get nervous when the power's off for an hour. I'm like, oh, uh, nobody open the fridge. Nobody open the freezer. You know, I start to, to hit the panic button there. But if you know that you have things you can fall back on, if you know that you have people that you can trust and you have developed skills and you have learned how to innovate and how to adapt and improvise, suddenly it seems a lot less like an ordeal when something unexpected does come along and it's more of an adventure. But most importantly, you've got the people who matter most on board, learning and enjoying these same experiences and, and uh, you know, hands-on. It's not just theoretical learning. Okay, well, we've all learned about this, but we've never put it into practice. Get yourself a camping club. Go take advantage of it. Suffer the bugs. Suffer the sunburn. <laughs> Learn what it's like to, to uh, have to hike in less than optimal conditions. But the time to do it is now. This is the time to start building up those calluses. If you wait until the moment of truth is upon you, it's going to be a whole lot tougher. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to direct you, uh, or at least direct your attention, to uh, one of my great sponsors, that Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah. You want to talk about a great skill to have on hand? How about the ability to make or to mend your clothing? Or to create some work of art, you know, through embroidery or long-arm quilting? Well, they've got it covered start to finish, Sewing and Quilting Center has competitive deals, the best service all the time. There's a reason they sell the most handy quilter, uh, long-arm quilting machines for a reason. 
and they not only inse- they not only sell and install them, they train you how to use them. They can fix whatever sewing machine you have because they're certified technicians. So if you want to really uh, make a purchase with some peace of mind, these are the ones you want to talk to. Sewingandquiltingcenter.com. They're located in St. George, Utah. And if you are anywhere in southern Utah, these are the folks you can count on. All right, couple of different things here. Um, I didn't get to watch the State of the Union address last night. Sorry, that I had to wash my hair. I had I had better things to do, but I was able to get my hands on a draft of the real State of the Union, thanks to Simon Black, and it was much more insightful than I would have thought of. So uh, this is the uh, this is the draft script from uh, the real State of the Union, my fellow Americans. Now that my approval ratings are roughly at the same level as my blood pressure, in other words, barely detectable, and my credibility is non-existent, I thought I might actually try being honest for a change about the real State of the Union. Just over a year ago when I took the oath of office, I talked about the common objects we love that define us as Americans. Opportunity, security, liberty, dignity, respect, honor, and yes, the truth. So let me describe to you the state of our union in those terms. First, opportunity. Under my leadership, inflation has reached a 40-plus year high and shows no signs of abating. I've also demonstrated how serious I am about fighting inflation by reappointing the very same Federal Reserve officials who created inflation, the inflation to begin with, with another four-year term. Further, the supply chain crisis we engineered from our cascading failures of labor policy, environmental policy, trade policy, monetary policy, and public health policy also shows little sign of resolving. We've also been instrumental in destroying the labor market and making it virtually impossible to find workers. Plus, my administration continues to impose new regulations by the day, threaten new taxes, and put out unintelligible public health policies that make things especially difficult for small and medium-sized businesses. But at least Pfizer's profits are at a record high. Second, security. Our southern border was overwhelmed with countless migrants almost literally the moment I took office. We continue to ignore this growing crisis. Similarly, we choose to ignore the soaring rates of murder in America's cities. As commander-in-chief, I ordered the U.S. military to hastily withdraw from Afghanistan without sufficient time to make adequate preparations. As a result, the entire world witnessed one of the most disgraceful, shameful events in U.S. history as we left behind our citizens, our allies, and tens of billions of dollars of taxpayer-funded military equipment to our sworn enemy. I tried making up for this personal and national humiliation by trying to outmaneuver Vladimir Putin over Ukraine. Now, he says, my son, Hunter, and I obviously have a soft spot for Ukraine, but my real priority was using Putin's military buildup as an opportunity to appear strong again and hopefully boost my sagging poll numbers. Despite my years of foreign policy experience, I failed to to foresee the consequences of provoking Putin, pushing him into a corner, and essentially daring him to invade. And now, by the way, as we're pushing Russia out of the swift international banking platform, I'm also failing to see the obvious risk of Putin hacking it, but more on that another time. You may recall that while I was hiding in my basement during the 2020 presidential campaign, I promised voters a steady hand when it came to diplomacy and national security. Well, this is what five decades of government experience gets you. Third, liberty. We continue to foster a climate 
where the government tells you what you're supposed to believe, what you have to put in your body, and how you're allowed to educate your children. We think nothing of imposing illegal, unconstitutional mandates, handing public health bureaucrats the authority to regulate everything from nationwide commerce to the entire U.S. housing market. Justin Trudeau recently set a fantastic example for us to follow when it comes to individual freedom. So we're working hard to become Canada as quickly as possible. Fourth, dignity and respect. I promised the American people unity in my inaugural address. I said that we must end this uncivil war that pits red against blue, rural versus urban, conservative versus liberal. Naturally, I have completely abandoned that promise. Not only have I failed to rein in the intolerant, out-of-control leftist Puritans waging cultural genocide across America, but I set a clear example for them by labeling my ideological opponents as white supremacists. I call legislation I don't like Jim Crow 2.0, and I encourage federal police agencies to investigate parents who don't want critical race theory taught to their children in public schools. Fifth, honor. My short time in office has brought extreme dishonor upon the reputation of the United States. In addition to the humiliation in Afghanistan, the rest of the world must be in shock as they see the constant chaos and absurdity of our government. We are more consumed by pronouns than progress. We publicly embrace Marxist ideologies. We push our intelligence agencies to prioritize diversity and inclusion over national security. We deliberately undercut our ally, the French, to do a submarine deal with Australia that provided absolutely zero benefit to our nation. And just recently, our public debt reached a whopping $30 trillion, which hardly brings any honor or esteem to our nation. Last but not least, truth. I told Americans last year during my inauguration that each of us has a duty and responsibility as Americans, as citizens, to defend the truth and to defeat the lies. That's why my administration has worked diligently to suppress free speech. We believe that hashtag science has only one authority figure, and anyone who disagrees with his eminence, Lord Protector Fauci, is guilty of misinformation. For that reason, we enlisted the support of Big Tech to remove posts and terminate user accounts upon our request. We claim that we love democracy so much Yet we continue to assert federal control over state and local elections. One of our goals is to squash any state law requiring voters to present valid identification before being allowed to cast their ballots. Requiring identification would help reduce voter fraud and increase election security, but we like voter fraud. So we're opposed to any identification requirement and label them as racist. We also rely on the mainstream media, which absurdly claims to be objective and unbiased, to reinforce our ridiculous propaganda. They do so willingly and voluntarily, refraining from holding me accountable or asking any difficult questions whatsoever. This, my fellow Americans, is the real state of our union. Tonight, however, I'm going to tell a bunch of pathetic lies that no one will believe about what a great job I'm doing. And if you feel a bit down about our state of the union, or the state of our union, Just remember, I'll still be president for another three years, 10 months, 19 days. We have a long way to go. I know, it's it's kind of tongue-in-cheek. Simon Black does a pretty good job, though, I think, of outlining the, the, the problem before us. And I, I don't mean to fill you with a sense of gloom and doom. But, oh, my gosh, it's, it's worse than we thought. But 
These are some of the realities that, uh, that we're just not allowed to question, at least not through mainstream sources. The news media, pff, they're not going to touch this. In fact, I'm including an article in today's show notes that I hope you'll take the time to read. One of the craziest signs of the times is the growing push to silence dissenting voices. Caitlin Johnstone has a terrific article called Defending Freedom and Democracy Sure Requires an Awful Lot of Censorship. And she's right. It's not just in relation to the whole Russia-Ukraine situation. Think about all the censorship that's been imposed and encouraged just in trying to keep that COVID narrative on track. And now it's completely left the rails. Reality has become too difficult to deny or to obscure. And so the mandates drop one after another after another. I think the big challenge for our time is to see things clearly as they are and not to be weighed down with it to the point of paralyzing inaction or fear or anger, but to see things as they are, to recognize, okay, that's, that's not good, that's not right, and then to boldly step forward and make the changes within your own sphere of influence that only you can make. Look, we're never going to have a perfect operating you know, environment. It's never going to be, you know, just smooth sailing. And frankly, the difficulty level has been dialed up to 11 here of late, as you've probably noticed. Having said that, I would encourage you to please remember who is really in charge, as in the creator of this universe. And I would encourage you to put your trust in the creator of the universe to direct you as to what you can do to make the difference that needs to be made. Think about it. This is The Brian Hyde Show.